Hey guys, Joe Miles here with Osseo Gear. This is the Mission Whitetail Podcast. We're going to be doing a deep dive into what it truly takes to kill these mature bucks. We're going to step outside the box and look at the why for gear, tactics, training, and more importantly, the mindset from over 35 years of chasing these magnificent animals all over North America. Thank you for following along and welcome to Mission Whitetail. All right, guys, welcome back to the Mission Whitetail podcast. Uh, I've got our good friend, Don Higgins, Higgins Outdoors and Real World Wildlife Products uh, on us on this morning. Don, thank you so much for being here. Well, thanks for having me, Joe. Um, it's an honor to be associated with you in any way and uh, trying to rock the Osseo camo for you this morning. Yeah, that's it's the real it's deal. Looking, it's looking good. All I can see was your head floating around back there. So that's that's a that's a good sign. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I, I blended into my chair even. <laughs> yes, you did. You sure did. So you know, we appreciate the heck out of that. And um, man, I, I tell you, this this partnership has has taken off. And um, you, you know, one of the best things we've done, you know, as a company, and and we appreciate all you do, all you do for us, and you know, the, the expertise and, and the, the knowledge that you're willing to share with us and with other people. So we are very humbled to, to, to be partnered up with you. That's for sure. Well, likewise, um, I'm always looking for quality people to, um, hang with and you and Osseo are definitely, uh, that. So just appreciate the opportunity you've given us. Well, that's great. Well, it, it is definitely mutual. So, so thank you again for that. And, you know, we, we kind of have, I guess, a little bit different of an audience. I, I do know we spread across, you know, some of the Midwest, um, but a lot of our guys are Southern guys, you know, Florida, Georgia, South Carolina, North Carolina, you know, we're out of South Carolina. And, and um, as you well know, some of the challenges, some of the tactics, if you will, are, are different from the Midwest and hunting some of these big swamps and stuff that we have in the South. And so I, mm -hmm. I thought it might be good to, for, for, for me and you and, and Kevin to get together and, and talk about um, what guys can do. Because when I think of Don Higgins, I think of a, a big buck killer, number one, and, and probably number two, or right there, one A would be a habitat genius. You, you know, creating the, the, the whitetail paradise, if you will, or what, what guys need to do. So, you know, you, you had your deadly dozen, um, which was the, the, the seed, I guess, or, or the, the food plot blend that you've done kind of out in the, in the Midwest and, and now developed this, this new Southern, uh, product. And, and, you know, we've got, we've got some of that to plant in an acre. T tell us a little bit about that and how that came to be well deadly doesn't became uh just a a big hit for us in the midwest sales grew tremendously every year and just one fantastic report after another um but as we started sending it further into the south we realized that there were some seeds in that blend that just were not a good fit for the southern states or the southern region so, uh, uh, last winter I was working on a property in Mississippi with Dr. Bronson Strickland, and this is a big property, um, that I'm going to be working on for multiple years. And one of the projects is going to be, you know, establishing some food plots. 
And we're trying, anytime I'm um, consulting on any property, I'm trying to set it apart from the neighbors as much as I possibly can. So I wanted something growing on that property that the neighbors are not going to be planting the same thing. And the deadly dozen mix is my favorite fall planted mix. Um, it's a green crop, if you will. It's, you know, you can divide your food plots into either greens or grains. And in the Southern States, uh, I don't think the grains have quite the appeal they do in the Midwest, uh, but the greens certainly do. Um, so, you know, it started with me picking Dr. Strickland's brain a little bit on that to visit to the Mississippi property, um, on some plants that uh, the deer prefer down that way. And we just kind of build on it from there. Um, did a little more of our own research, consulted with some other folks. Um, I've got a client in Florida. He lives in Florida. He's actually got property in Florida and Georgia. And I was on his Georgia farm last uh, winter and he just killed over the weekend. He killed 164 inch deer in Florida. And uh, <laughs> yeah, exactly. He'd been, his goal for a long time was to kill a 150 in Florida. Well, he blew that out of the water this past weekend and killed a 164. Um, but you know, he's very serious about land management as well. So I picked his brain a little bit. Um, and we put together a blend that, uh, uh, for the Southern States that we, we put out as a pilot program this fall. And, uh, it's got 12 plant species, just like the deadly dozen, but they're different than the deadly dozen geared more towards the South. And we're really looking to expand into the Southern States. Uh, we've got a few dealers down there now, uh, but it, we just see that as a, a opportunity that we have not taken advantage of to this point. There's some really serious deer hunters, uh, in the South and, you know, I've got a little bit of history in the South. I actually hunted Alabama back about 1987. I think it was, uh, the very first Buckmasters classic that they ever held. I, I actually attended that. I was about a, let's see, in 87, I'd have been, uh, 24, no, 23, I was 23, 23 years old and, uh, attended that very first Buckmasters classic. Uh, um, you know, I've got a good friend, you and south carolina i've consulted in in georgia as i mentioned as well as mississippi um so i've got some southern connections and i really wanted to reach those people i spoke at the dixie deer classic last year for the first time and uh you know i see that as a whole different uh um demographic if you will i mean like you mentioned so hunting in the southern states is totally different than it is in the midwest but I feel it's something I can relate to with the experiences I've had down there. And I want to kind of cater specifically to that region and to those hunters. Yep. No, I, I get that is in, in the, in the deadly dozen, are there, are there particular species that you're, you're allowed to, you know, talk about like, is it radishes and, and rape or, or, or is, is that kind of your, your proprietary kind of top secret stuff or, or <laughs> how does that work? Well, no, it's not really top secret. It's just that there were some of the plants in that, that mix, like you mentioned, the, the radish and the turnips and, and some of those bulb plants that really need, uh, they need a, some really cold weather on them to change the nitrate levels in those leaves to make them more palatable. They're yes. actually not very palatable, you know, in, uh, warmer conditions, but 
once they get several days of, of freezing weather on them, they, the nitrate levels change and the sugars kind of rise up in the leaves and they become way more palatable. And that was not something that we can count on in the South. Um, you know, if we needed say four or five days of nights, 20 degrees and below, there, there's probably going to be in, in some regions of the South. Anyway, there's going to be years that that doesn't even happen. Yeah. It happens um, right here. Yeah. So we had to, we had to take those seed uh, species out of the mix and, and then we had to replace them with something. And that's where uh, Dr. Strickland's advice and, and my client there in Georgia's advice uh, um, really paid off uh, because they helped us replace those with basically a lot of clovers. Mm -hmm. um, I think there's about four different clovers in that deadly dozen now. Um, we also wanted a plot that I, I know how huge turkey hunting is in the South too. I mean, it's almost like a religion of its own. So we wanted that plot to, to be a good turkey plot in the spring. So a guy could plant that plot in, in the fall, ha have a good deer hunting season over it, and then come right back to that same plot in the spring. And without doing anything at all, that plot is there, you know, hopefully full of turkeys. So perfect. That That's the goal. Anyway, we'll, we'll see how it works. I think it should work fantastic. Um, if we get a good feedback from this pilot program, uh, which works expecting then um, you know it'll be a full-fledged product next year and, and we'll be pushing it all we can throughout the south well it, you know it, it, what you just said is is perfect for where i'm going to be planting this i've, I've got a, a my lifelong best friend owns a, a big hunting property uh on the congaree river and he is a huge turkey hunter that, that is his absolute passion. He, he likes to duck hunt and turkey hunt. Those are his things. And he allows me to, to bow hunt on the property, um, you know, kind of have free range, let me go and come as I please. And, and, and just, you know, it, it's an amazing uh, opportunity for me. And we've got mm -hmm. a, a one acre plot, if you will, that um, is, is, you know, right by where some of his turkeys roost on the river. And, you know, it's, it's in a really good area, you know, for deer as well. Um, Don, if you don't mind, you know, I think one area that I personally am lacking is the planning and food plot, because I've always been kind of get permission, small leases, you know, not, not had the opportunity to really manage a farm and plant a ton of food plots, even though my dad was, was in the landscaping and, and, you know, kind of not farming, but, but that type business, I was not born with the, with the green thumb, if you will, that he was, but, mm -hmm. um, it, so if you don't mind, would you walk us and, and, and guys that, that may be in the same boat as me through what your process would be for, for this food plot? Just just to give you some history on it, it, it's a it's a vacant food plot. It's been bush hogged. It can be sprayed. Um, it hasn't been planted in probably two years. It gets bush hogged every year. It had some clover in it. So there is some some residual clover that does spring spring up out there but um you know it's just a, a vacant um food plot that's been bush hogged it can be sprayed so that's kind of where we are right now H how it you know we want to do this in the next couple of weeks because i know it's getting to be time to to plant it mm -hmm. here in the south um, walk us through if you don't mind kind of what your process would be soup to nuts on, on getting that food plot the best we can possibly get it well 
you know, for a lot of people, the limiting factor is going to be equipment. So uh, under ideal conditions, um, I would go into that plot that you described. It's just been bush hogged and I would either disc it up with a disc or if you got a, you know, maybe a small tractor with a tiller, till it up, work that soil up, um, get a good seed bed prepared. And then just go in and broadcast that seed. You can use either one of those hand crank broadcast seeders, or you could use a, there's an, a product called extreme blower that, that fits on a leaf blower that mm-hmm. you can put that seed in and it'll just blow it right out with a leaf blower, but broadcast that seed on top of that work soil that you prepared. And once you've done that, if you could roll, go over it with some sort of a roller, either a cultipacker or even a, a lawn roller to, to push that seed into the ground to firm up that seed bed and you're good to go. Really? Um, another option. Yeah, that, that's all it would take. Um, another option, if you have access to a no-till drill, you could go in and spray all that vegetation that's there and kill it and then no-till drill the seed right into that dead vegetation and that would work fine as well. Um, you could even, and I'm kind of hesitant to even throw this out there because it's it's far inferior to the two methods I just described, but you could even go in there and you could uh, spray the vegetation to kill it and then just broadcast this seed on the ground. Depending on how bad or how thick that vegetation is, um, what will happen is that dying vegetation will will kind of fall and cover that seed that you've thrown on the ground, and a lot of it will germinate. The issue is going to be with this method that a lot of that seed is is not going to germinate. So you're not going to get near as good a stand, and you'd probably need to use a little, little more seed than um, like the recommended uh, acre bag or quarter acre bag. Um, you'd want to seed a little bit heavy using that method. But for a guy that has absolutely no equipment whatsoever, he can go into a weed patch and just using like a, a backpack sprayer or a pump-up garden sprayer, he can spray an area uh, to kill the vegetation using glyphosate or Roundup and then come in and uh, spread that seed in the area that he sprayed. And that, that herbicide is not going to hurt that seed, but what will happen is those plants he sprayed will die. They will fall to the ground. They will cover that seed, and, and it'll, that area will spring back to life with that seed that he's planted. Now, again, that, this is not the preferred method by any means. This is, a, this is for the guy that um, just doesn't have the equipment uh, to do it the other ways. Okay, no, that, that's perfect. So, so in my mind, I was thinking, all right, the first thing we've got to do is a soil sample. We got to do get lime in there. We got to, you know, hit fertilizer. You know, I was thinking all this massive stuff. So this really simplifies it. And we, we definitely have access to a, to a, um, to, to a tractor, to a plow. So we can make a really nice seed bed. It's good, rich, uh, mm-hmm. river soil. And, and then we can come back with a, with a packer or a roller and roll it right in that, that, that won't be an issue at all. That'll be very easy for us to, to accomplish. And we, we don't need to fertilize it or anything like that after the fact or, or before or anything like that. Well, you know, I kind of skipped over that just assuming that you had good soil and the, the soil situation that you just described along a river bottom, where it's usually pretty fertile, you're, you're probably going to be fine. Okay. If you wanted to fertilize it um, without a soil test, and boy, I cringe when I say this, but uh, 
you can just go and get some generic triple 12, triple 15 fertilizer, whatever, put about a hundred, 150 pounds per acre of that on. And, and that'll kind of jumpstart your plot. Um, but you know, a soil sample is really pretty critical, but a lot of times on these, these small green plots that guys are planting in the fall, there's not much, uh, planning or prep that went into the whole situation that, you know, they wake up on Saturday morning and decide I'm going to go plant a food plot today. So right. they, they go out and they go down to the local farm store and grab some seed and away they go. And yep. the whole soil test thing gets, uh, um, basically overlooked. So if you can, yeah, soil test is always fantastic, but a situation like you just described, you're going to be fine. Okay. And that's the, the good thing about this deadly dozen. And, uh, we're going to rename this. It's not going to be called deadly dozen. It's going to be a Southern name, but, uh, the good thing about it with 12 different plant species in the mix, there's going to be something grow. Sure. You throw that seed out there and maybe the conditions are not great for one or two of those seeds but it works for all the rest of them. So there's going to be several of those species are going to grow on just about any site. Okay. So we're going to, we're going to document all this for the, for the pilot program for you guys. So we're going to go down, show the plot and the condition it's in. We're going to plow it up, obviously get a good seed bed. Um, th then we'll probably use a, one of those um, bag spreaders, um, you know, mm -hmm. and spread it out like it's supposed to be done and then show the, the process and then dump a bunch of trail cameras in there and get some pictures of deer. So I think it'll be, it, it's exciting for me because I'm enhancing, you know, whitetail knowledge. And, and, and I think anytime you can do that, that is definitely a, a, a part of the whitetail overall game that I'm lacking in. So I'm super excited about you know, doing this. I've done a, just a tad bit of it, you know, when I have had, you know, permission to put in, you know, a plot here or there, but, but never to this, this magnitude where I'm really trying to follow the right steps. Mm -hmm. Well, it, it can be a big game changer. I've, I've been deer hunting for about 45 years. Actually last season was my 45th. So I'm getting ready to start my 46 years of deer hunter. And in that 46 years, the two biggest game changers that I've seen in the whole deer hunting industry or world, if you will, is trail cameras, number one, and food plots, number two. So this can be a real game changer on a property. That's great. Well, we're speaking of properties, I think that's a good, good segue into kind of part two of what, what I wanted to talk about with you, Don, is, you know, Kevin sitting here with me, a young hunter, you know, he's got access to some permission spots that, that he can do, a you know, a little bit on, you know, he could probably do some cutting, um, could do a little bit of planning, you know, but th these, these properties are, you know, 15, 25, 80 acres, you know, they're, they're, they're small properties. And, and I'll put myself in that category as well. You know, I have quite, quite a few small properties that I can hunt that are way away from everything. Um, fr from a habitat standpoint, obviously on small properties, there's a, a limited amount that you can do. Uh, and, and you have probably covered this 50,000 times with people and, and I apologize, but, I, but I haven't heard, you, you know, what, what your take is on that. W what is your advice to guys that have small properties that have the ability to do some, some habitat improvement? I'm sure you have that answer keyed up and ready, ready to go. <laughs> yeah. I've heard that one a time or two. Um, <laughs> I knew that know. was coming. <laughs> 
the, uh, you know, the, really the big thing when, when you've got a small property, um, human intrusion becomes even more critical than it does on a bigger property. Cause you're, you just, you can't get away with anything. Um, what you're allowed to get away with is so much less. Uh, you, you just can't make mistakes. So you need to make that property as thick as possible. If you've got the opportunity and you can go in there, a chainsaw is a deer hunter's best friend. If you can tr drop some trees and make it thick as could be, let some sunlight in, let that sunlight hit the ground and get some regeneration growing in there. And then maybe there already is on the, on a specific property, but, um, you know, make it as thick as you possibly can. You know, everybody gets wrapped up in the whole food situation and, uh, they, everybody wants to plant a food pot. They think that's the, the magic bean, if you will, to killing big deer. And I'm a guy that owns a food pot seed company, you know, so, you know, I, I'm glad everybody's out there planting food pots, <laughs> of course. but I'm here to tell you, um, when it comes to killing big deer, a food plot is way down the list of, of priorities that deer, you, first of all, you need to, you need to be able to hunt him on the same property where he's bedding. And I tell my clients all the time if you're hunting a deer that's bedded just one property off the property you're bedding on your odds of killing that deer are about 10 percent what they are if you're on the same property if you're hunting the property where he's bedding and it doesn't really matter if you're hunting a big property or a small property we need to try to get that buck that you want to kill to bed on your property and that requires thick cover most of the time and it also requires without a doubt everywhere it freedom of human intrusion. It doesn't matter if it's a five acre property or a 500 acre property, you can ruin it with too much human intrusion. So, uh, you know, I try to, to hunt the edges only on small properties, let the deer have the heart of it because if it's a small property, even if he's in the center, he's not that far from me on the edge. And sooner or later, I'm going to get my opportunity hunting the edge. If I run into the heart of the property and, and try to hunt him there, I got about one or two good hunts and then boom, he's gone and my chances are gone with him. So, uh, create some thick cover if you're allowed, you know, another when switching gears to food, one, uh, thing that you can do, even if you don't own the property, if there's any kind of ag field there at all, especially in the South, because you guys are planting your fall plots a little bit later and typically your harvest of, of grain crops is a little bit earlier than the Midwest because you're planting a little bit earlier in the spring, you can go into those, um, ag fields that are ready for harvest or have already been harvested. And you can spread things like our Southern blend or oats or, or like that in that crop residue. And, and you can get a good food plot in, in an ag field that's being farmed. And the farmer typically doesn't care at all because all you're doing is helping the field. You're, you're putting some organic matter back in there and, before he plants next spring, he's going to come in there and he's going to spray the weeds and he's going to work the ground anyway. So whatever you plant is not going to be a big deal whatsoever. There you go. That makes good sense. And it, I mean, it doesn't necessarily have to even be on your property that you have access to. I mean, it, it could be right. on a, you know, a, a guy's, Hey, we don't allow any hunting, but if you wanted to throw some food in here to help me knock yourself out. Yeah. that, that That's a very good idea. Don, that was that was exactly what I was going to ask you about the, the small properties. If, if you recommended or did any of the, I hear a lot of guys talking about hinge cutting and things like that. Um, I got a 
small property that I've been hunting for like 11 years now. And when I first started hunting it, I think they um, recently cut it. They they logged a little bit of it, and uh, it was good and thick in areas. And I, when I would scout it, I would find um, a lot of beds. Now, 10, 11 years later, um, there's a lot more canopy and a lot less stem count um, undergrowth, and it just doesn't seem like they're – it's definitely a pinch point where they're cutting through, especially pre-rut and rut, but it doesn't seem like they're bedding on it as much now that it's not as thick. Well, they definitely like that thick cover, not only for bedding, but it provides good browse for them too. Right. And uh, as you mentioned, you do a cut, and it's going to slowly get better to a point, and then it's slowly going to get worse um, as the canopy closes in as the, the vegetation that's growing there matures um, so it's a continual process about every I don't know 15 or 20 years you're probably going to have to go in and, and do a fairly aggressive cut in an area to, to keep it in good shape right yeah my, my buddy just recently got permission on a 75 acre piece and he was sending me videos and he's like it's a it's a jungle out here, man. It's got a lot of the river cane and briar patches. And I'm like, leave it alone. That that's perfect. They love it. And he's like, Oh, we got to And I said, Nope, leave it alone. <laughs> yep. Yeah. Um, that that's one issue that I have with, uh, all the internet, social media, if you will, is we promote so many different projects, habitat projects. Um, and, and the list is long, but that we got guys that are going out there and, and they're actually making their property worse than when they started. So, you know, when you start your properties at a certain level and you do projects and you, you make it a little bit better and a little bit better, but there's a fine line. And when you cross that fine line, boom, you go down and your property is actually worse right. than where it was when you started. And it's, and, and that, that fine line is too much human intrusion. So for instance, a guy, I'll put a, uh, you know, an artificial water source on his property, which is, water is a great thing. A water hole is a great thing. Um, my issue with water holes is the ones that have to be filled by going in with a tank and, uh, you know, on a skid loader or the back of a truck or whatever to fill that water hole. Every time you go in and fill it, that's just more human intrusion. And, and that's just one project in a long list of things. So, uh, you got to be really careful as, as you're making that property better. You want to make sure you don't cross that fine line and boom, you're even worse than where you started at. Right. So it's almost like less yeah. is more sometimes. Absolutely. And I, I see a lot of good properties ruined by too much habitat work. And it's really not too much habitat work. It's too much human intrusion. Yeah, that makes perfect sense. But, you know, that all very good points. And, I'm going to switch gears on us from, from, I guess, habitat to, to locating now, Don, if you will. You know, you and I have talked about this some, about owning your arm, arm trying to, you know, grow big, mature deer. Uh, you, you know, for a guy, let's, let's shift gears to a guy that wants to come to the Midwest or, or gets the, the, the really mature deer bug. That's what he's focusing on. You know, he's, he's wanting to go to Iowa. He's wanting to go to Illinois, Kansas, you know, whatever, it, you, you know, we, we talk about 
owning a farm and trying to grow a deer versus leases versus having, you know, one 400 acre farm or 10 40 acre farms. You know, I, I know that you have gone kind of back and forth on this over your career um, where, where, you know, I, I'm not trying to put words in your mouth, but, but it, you know, what, what I think of when I think of Don, you know, a guy that is obsessed with the absolute tip of the spear, largest whitetail bucks on the planet, not settling for anything less, um, you know, world-class whitetails. And if that means going three years without shooting a deer, so be it three years without, without shooting a deer, you're not going to lower your standards and you have an obsession or passion for those top end bucks. So for a guy that is also wanting to, to graduate or start doing the same type thing, what is your recommendation now? Would you say, Hey, you need, you need to save your pennies and get a different job and, and buy a thousand mm -hmm. acres in Kansas and, and, and manage the heck out of that thing. Or is it, or have you, you, you kind of, thought more and, and said, no, I, you know, really you need to spread out and find different farms, different areas, G go with that, if you will. What, what are your thoughts there, Don? Well, first of all, a person needs to really define what their goal is. I mean, down to the letter, um, there are a handful of guys, not a lot of them. I consider like you and Ben rising, put you guys in this group you kill a lot of really really good bucks i mean you guys stack them up like cordwood <laughs> you just every time i turn on social media you and ben have another big buck down and that's that's fantastic i mean if that's your goal i mean i'm happy for you my goal is not to kill a, a large number of bucks but i want to kill the biggest stinking buck i can find and i don't care if i got to go to the moon to find him um that's what i'll do and you know, it, it's, it's a totally different approach and it's taken me a long time to figure it out. I mean, I made a lot of mistakes. So if I look at all these bucks on my wall and I've, I've leased a lot of ground over the years, I don't have one buck on my wall that I killed on leased ground. I have spent untold thousands of dollars leasing. Now I could have killed some really nice bucks on leased ground. But I, I used to think that I could just, uh, I could tie up several tracts of land all over the place and I could grow these giants and that, yeah, one year the giant's going to be on that property and next year he's going to be on, um, the giant I hunt will be on this property and, and so forth. And what I found is that these, these kind of bucks are so rare that you can't plan for them whatsoever. You can't plan to grow them, although I have on my home farm twice. And I think God blessed me more than anything because uh, I, I sure couldn't have planned it that way. Um, you just got to find where they are. And then once you find where they are, then you got to do what you can to, to get permission or to, to hunt within his home range. Um, whether that be by leasing, knocking on doors or whatever, but I, I've literally killed more of my better bucks by just knocking on a door and doing zero habitat work than I have leasing a property or buying a property, setting it up, investing thousands of dollars. It, it's a great way to kill great bucks. But if you want the, the ultimate top end, the, the, real, the real chore, if you will, is finding them. And you got to cover a lot of real estate. And I don't think really there's hardly anybody with enough money 
to buy enough real estate to grow these kind of bucks year after year. Mm -hmm. Of course, I say that. And then I start thinking of some guys out in Iowa that are doing it. So, you know, some of the bigger names in the industry, they've tied up enough land where, yeah, they can find a giant to hunt every year. But for the, the typical guy, and even a guy with some resources, you know, I'm not loaded by any means, but I got probably a little more resources than the average guy. It, it's, it, it'd be just about impossible for me to buy enough land to have a real world-class giant to hunt every year. Yeah. So you, you got to really, the first thing the guy needs to do is, is define your goal. Are you going to be fine with shooting, you know, 150-inch plus bucks every year? Well, if so, then yeah, head to the Midwest, buy you a piece of property. And that's a very realistic goal. But if you want to shoot bucks that are 180 and bigger every year, forget owning land. You just need to travel all over the Midwest with trail cameras, a whole truck bed full of trail cameras, put them everywhere that you can possibly put them, find your giant. And then once you've found him, the work begins, knock on every door, study um, uh, Google Earth. Or Onyx. Onyx is a fantastic app for that. Yeah. Because it's giving you the landowners and everything. And it's, it's giving you the contact info for that landowner. And uh, you just get on Onyx and, and, and you kind of circle where you know that buck is. And you just go out in ever widening circles, uh, you know, based on your whitetail knowledge of where that buck is likely to be traveling. And you gain access to as many of those properties as possible. Um, whenever I get a, a picture of a giant from that point on, boom, I just come in with all kinds of trail cameras and I just saturate, you know, for about a mile around with trail cameras to, to kind of pin down that buck's entire range. Um, that first picture, it, it basically gives you one point on the map. Yeah. And from there, I want to add, add as many other points as I possibly can. And I'm using trail cameras to do that. So you know, for a guy that's, that wants to come into the Midwest and, and chase giant bucks, you really need to fine tune your, your, uh, goal. Are you fine with shooting a, a really good one or do you want to shoot the really rare world-class buck? Yeah. Yeah. And, 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 you know, a, a lot of guys, you know, are, are good with, you know, staying in that, uh, you know, especially guys in the South. I mean, 150 inch deer, like, like I think, Kevin, you're more in tune with the South Carolina record book than I am, but I think there are four net Boone and Crockett's that have been killed in the state of South Carolina, and that's rifle or bow. Mm -hmm. That's it. Four yeah. net Boone. And, and guys, call me out if I'm wrong that are listening here, but I think that's right. I think so, too. I, I'm not positive, but I, I, it's very, very low. I know so, so, you know, a 150-inch buck for a South Carolinian um, is a is – a, is a world-class deer for, for, for that, you know, well, it's not a world-class deer, but it's a, it's a trophy of a lifetime for a lot of guys for sure. Yeah. If I didn't know there was like a giant on the farm or wherever I was hunting, he'd be getting an arrow. If let a 150 come walking by me in the Midwest, he's freaking getting it. But I don't have a ton of, I don't have a ton of, um, deer on the wall yet. So that, that's a plenty big, Plenty big and that's me. the point of defining your goals right. and, and, and what mm -hmm. you want to do. And, and I'm going to, you know, I, I, I got ADD here, so forgive <laughs> me, uh, forgive me, Don, but, um, trail cameras, uh, you, you know, you and I talked, touched on this a little bit when I was out at one of your master classes, you are a big believer in like the Reconyx, uh, regular SD card camera more so than the, than the text cams. 
um, and the the run with that one for a minute. Tell us your philosophy there on on uh, not to go down a huge rabbit hole here on trail cameras because we could do a whole podcast on that. But but what, what what's your thinking there? Well, I say that when you get a mature buck, your target buck walks past your camera you absolutely cannot afford to miss that picture. That, that opportunity does not come along enough or often enough that you can afford to miss some of them. And for my money, the most reliable camera that I've found is the Reconyx non-cell camera. I think I, I, just the other day I went in and I moved a Reconyx cell camera. And, and before I did, I was walking in front of the, the camera. Guess what? That camera did not take my picture. Yeah. The, the cell cams miss a lot of pictures. And, and in my mind, Reconyx is the best cell camera out there too, but they miss pictures. The other thing is, and, and people are going to think I'm crazy when I say this, at least some people are, I, I almost think some bucks can detect that radio signal or whatever from that cell camera. And uh, they just seem better at avoiding a cell cam than they do the regular cams. And I say that because I, I can take my regular cameras and put them in, put them out for the first time, and I'm getting pictures uh, of good bucks just like right out of the gate. It's like almost instantly. There's been more than once that I put cameras out, and in less than eight hours, I had the giant I was after on that camera I just put out eight hours before or less. Uh, it's actually been as, as little as less than one hour after I put a camera out. Boom, there's my target buck, the Joey buck that I shot. Um, a couple of years ago is a perfect example, but I, I almost think that they can detect those cell cameras better than they can the regular cameras and the cell camera misses pictures. There's two reasons right there why I prefer the non-cell. There, and, and you think it's worth it, the in and out, to pull the SD cards over getting the pictures sent to you? I do because I'm using a, a buck's annual pattern. I'm not using my trail camera to tell me, hey, this buck's on his feet in daylight. I need to go start hunting. Gotcha. Uh, most of the bucks that I'm targeting are bucks that I've watched for a number of years. I'm putting together that annual pattern to so that when he does become of size that I want to target that buck, you know, I've got years of history with him to look back on to formulate a plan. Um I just use those cameras a lot different than most guys. So I'm not running in and checking them once a week or even once a month. I've have cameras out sometimes for six months at a time without checking them. And the drawback there is you never know when a tree branch falls in front of your camera or weeds or vines grow up in front of it, or somebody steals it or whatever batteries go dead. Uh, there's a lot of things that could happen, but at the same time, you're really cutting back on that human intrusion. And something else I've started doing with my cameras just in the past couple of years is I will flood an area with cameras. And it, I know a term that a lot of trappers are going to recognize is gang sets. Trappers lay out gang sets or a group of sets in real close proximity to each other. And we've all seen pictures of the, you know, a coyotes in a trap. And in one picture, you can see three sets and each one has a different coyote in it. Um, that's a gang set. So if a pack of coyotes comes through, the trapper has a chance to catch multiples or a family of raccoons comes through, they catch multiples. Well, I'll throw multiple trail cameras in a small area so that if a buck slips behind one camera, well, boom, I got him on the other. Sure. There's been there's several situations where I've got two cameras on the same tree 
pointed opposite directions. So no matter which side of that tree the buck passes, I'm going to get his picture. Yeah. Yeah. So that, that you know, that that's, you know, I, I do use a lot of the, of the text cams and, and I have, you know, had, had good success and I do, I do use them for history of deer, but also live Intel. Um, I, I do get mm-hmm. some live Intel and, and absolutely I can equate a deer this year that I killed to a live, you know, I got a, I finally got a daylight picture of him and I killed him the next afternoon. Um, mm-hmm. so, so, so that, you know, it, it did work, but it's, it's an interesting philosophy and, and I can definitely see, I mean, the same thing has happened to me. I've gone in to a, to a text cam and put out more mineral. Um, you know, I had it over a mineral lick using the, your maximizer mineral and gone and, and refreshed that mineral site and left and then checked my phone and I walked right in there and no picture of me. And I was there for five mm-hmm. minutes. So yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, that, that's a very good point. Mm. You, you can't afford not to get the picture. Yeah. And I do have cell cam. I got 13 cell cameras, so I, I do use them. It's not like I'm totally against them and I'm typically using them. Once I've found a target buck and I want to kill that target buck like this year, you know, I found a buck I want to shoot. Well, most of my cell cameras are in the range of that buck gotcha. so that, you know, I, I can, but I also got, you know, non-cell cameras in that range too, um, putting together more info for next year, but, uh, they, they've all got their place. Okay. Good, good, good to know. Um, so, so kind of summarizing that for a guy that really wants the top, top tier bucks needs to get out, get as many places in the Midwest as he can get get as many permission spots as he can get, get his cameras out. Don't worry about, you know, habitat and farming and food plots and all that and, and find that deer and then figure out how to get permission in there to kill it. That's it in a nutshell. Yeah. Yep. Cover some real estate. Cause you got, I mean, literally right now I've got uh, cameras in four States <clears throat> on different tracts of land, uh, Ohio, Indiana, Illinois, Iowa, and I'm not even, I don't even have an Iowa tag this year. I drew last year, so it may be, who knows what I'm going to draw my next one, but I'm still putting cameras on the area I'm going to hunt to get that annual information. Right. Don, in a, in a perfect world, you, we touched on a little bit on how you, um, I guess, target these big bucks and then hone in on them. How do you, how do you find them from beginning to, I guess, killing them and and knowing where to put your cameras and all that when you when you broadcast kevin's audio is not working very well for me i i can i can hear him making noise but that's about it okay i can repeat the i can repeat the question he he was asking don what um how do you know where to put your cameras when you're when you're broadcasting them out in you know in different states and different areas i mean you know obviously that's dependent on time of year and, and kind of what you're but it, do you have a strategy there on you know obviously again we're from south carolina so we're going to go we're going to make a road trip we're going to go to kentucky illinois kansas that's going to be our road trip and we've mm-hmm. gotten permission ahead of time for certain properties you know wh- where would you focus in on putting the cameras is that the question yeah can you hear me now don hear me now okay all right don was that good yeah i i got your question joe i 
still can't hear Kevin, but, uh, it, it depends on a couple of things. One is the, the laws in the state. If you're allowed to put bait or, or mineral out, well, like a state like Ohio or Kentucky, well, without a doubt, I'm putting that out and, and putting cameras on them. Um, you move into a state like Illinois where you can't. And I think, uh, scrapes are, are fantastic, especially rope scrapes, scrapes. You, you doctor up. <clears throat> I like to throw some smoky scent in a scrape or, or create my own mock scrape. And, uh, if that scrapes in a very good spot at all, you're going to have a photo of every buck in the area. Um, funnel areas are another good one. Um, you know, Roger Rothar, legendary bow hunter out of Ohio told me 40 years ago, probably, uh, that, uh, a buck will walk a hundred yards out of his way to go through an open gate in a fence. And, uh, you know, a, a a hole in the fence is the same as a gate. You put it in an area like that where the deer are really pinched down, <clears throat> you can get a lot of pictures that way too. Um, a lot of times I'll play it, put them where deer cross like to cross the road so that, uh, you know, I'm not stomping into a property. I'm just stopping at the road, walking in, you know, maybe 40, 50 yards off the road um, at a spot they like to cross and putting a camera there. Um, any place where that activity is funneled down for whatever reason. Yeah. And so that, that leads me to another question. We had a buddy come by yesterday, come by the office and he's a as serious, a deer hunter here in the South as there is. And, and, and I told him that we were going to be, you know, talking with you tomorrow and, and uh, he's read your books and followed along on your podcast. And, and he, he had a question with these, with these quote unquote man-made funnels, if you will, like where there may be some, you, you know, you, you've, you've cut some fencing to make a hole there or, or you've dropped some brush or whatever it may be, but you've, you've kind of stacked the odds a little bit more in your favor to create these funnels. Have you found that that can be a predatory ambush spot as well? Like for fawns and does, you know, if they're, they're kind of funnel down. Have you ever been asked this question before? I, I thought it was a pretty unique question that, that the, the, the coyotes, if you will, learn that, Hey, they, they're kind of funneled through right here. And it becomes a spot where, where maybe they can, they can jump the phones or, or has that never been really an issue? I've never seen it an issue. What I have seen as an issue is guys try to funnel down deer too tight where they won't use it, especially a mature buck. Um, instead of, you know, going through a tight funnel, he'll just circle way out, out away from it. And, uh, I've seen that many times. Uh, I've, I've ran into a couple of situations on properties that I've consulted on where they've, you know, they've started doing habitat work before I get there. And, um, they've like tried to enclose their food plot with piles of brush. You know, they go in into a wooded area to create a food plot to take a dozer in there. And what are they do? And they're, they're piling that brush around the edge which is, is great. You know, it'll, it'll limit the number of options that a deer has when he enters that plot, but they do it to the extreme where they've, they've totally surrounded a plot with, you know, mountains of this brush and they've left one opening in one corner and they think all the deer are going to march through that one and, and go into that basically enclosure and trap themselves and the odds of a, a mature buck falling for that are, are very slim. I just yeah. don't see them. They're smarter than that. They're not going to box themselves in like that. Yeah, that makes good sense. Makes real good sense. 
Okay, well, Chase, that answers your question. I know you'll be be listening <laughs> listening to this, so uh, that that takes care of that. Well, um, Don, I appreciate it, man. I, we, we'd love to do this again. Um, I know we're we're closing in on an hour here, and and I, I really appreciate taking your time and, and talking about the habitat and, and going after these really top end bucks. And um, you know, good luck this season. I know we'll be talking and keep us posted on how everything's going. And and uh, best of luck to you this season. Well, thanks, Joe. I appreciate the opportunity and uh, appreciate the support of Osseo Camo. And I'd be glad to come back anytime you travel through Illinois. Make sure you stop in for lunch or supper or something. I'll buy. And, yes, uh, sir. I, 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 I will definitely take you up on that. I'll be <laughs> heading to Kansas um, here around Halloween and, and plan on staying out there for a while. So on my way back, if I'm sure you'll already have one down by then. And, and uh, I'll, I'll stop in and we can we can celebrate. Well, I'll tell you what, if I shoot the buck that I want to shoot, you'll probably hear me screaming in South <laughs> Carolina. So <laughs> Well, I got a I got a sneaking suspicion you're gonna you're gonna close that deal. So uh this we're is gonna excited. be a tough one. Well, well I, if anybody can get it done, it'll be you. Well, we'll see. But uh this thanks for having me on all your support, Joe. It means the world to me. Yeah, man. Thanks so much, Don. Have a good afternoon. We really appreciate it. Thanks, Don. thanks you too. All right, buddy.